This is CyberSound, your simplified and fundamentals-focused source for all things cybersecurity, with your hosts, Jason Pufall and Stephen Maresca. Welcome to the CyberSound podcast. I'm Jason Pufall, the Vice President of Security Services for Vanguard. And I'm Stephen Maresca, Senior Security Engineer. Today, we're going to spend time on what I would consider to be an epidemic in the cybersecurity space, uh, ransomware. Probably something people have heard about. Uh, Colonial Pipeline brings ransomware to the forefront. Uh, certainly, we see it in the news all the time. Uh, but I think you know the reality is a lot of a lot of folks listening probably don't know really how it starts, uh, really what the potential impact to their business could be, uh, and in some cases, maybe not even exactly what ransomware is. So it's probably the best place to start. Uh, Steve, give us a second on what that is. So at the end of the day, ransomware is not especially complicated. It's essentially how an attacker keeps your data from you in a way that doesn't allow you to use it. And that's typically achieved using something like cryptography. Uh, It's no more complicated than that. So cryptography meaning just encrypting data into a format that's unreadable? Yeah, exactly. Um, So what makes it so effective then? because it seems like that would be something that organizations could protect themselves against. Like, how does it start? Generally speaking, you know, attackers will try to send a phishing email or they'll uh, get a, a person to open up an attachment that they shouldn't. Um, certainly in, in the last year during a pandemic, uh, many companies have opened up their, their networks so that people can work from home. And, you know, if a password has been leaked or, or stolen, uh, they'll get in that way because their their networks are a bit more permissive than they used to be. Examples would be VPN or a remote desktop or anything that resembles them. So none of those techniques sound too sophisticated, uh, but maybe we want to spend a minute on what phishing is uh, for folks who might not be familiar with that. Um, in the old days, when people talked about phishing, it was you know an email that somebody received that was full of all kinds of grammatical errors and misspellings, uh, probably asking you to wire... Uh, or you know, maybe be the recipient of you know, multiple millions of dollars from some individual in you know, Africa. I think that's changed, right? So now we're seeing phishing emails that are written much more professionally uh, and very often just trying to deceive or trick somebody into providing their credentials. I mean, at, at right. the root, that's really what it is, right? right? Phishing emails today are, are really trying to convey a sense of urgency, uh, a sense of fear. They're trying to get you to act in a way that you know, supports the business. It, you know, the message might purport to be from a supervisor or from a boss or a coworker, and you have a relationship that's established with that entity. And you, meaning to do well, try to respond or or follow the direction that that's requested of that email. And really, the attacker tries to get you to supply a username or a password or click a link that that could be malicious. It's as simple as that. All right. So let's let's frame this a little bit then. So you're a business. You have data. And we'll be as generic as that. It might be classified data, depending on the type of business you're in, or it really might be nothing more complicated than invoices or ordering information, right? And an attacker identifies you as an opportunity. Uh, what makes a company attractive to an, to an attacker, potentially? Well, so they don't start out in a way that is targeted, ultimately. Um, ransomware, and, and you know, like many other attacks, it's... They're from an opportunity perspective. Uh, Attackers will initially cast a wide net 
and they will try to enter a network. Once they have a foothold, they'll try to determine exactly what what type of organization it is. Uh, At the end of the day, every company has HR records. At the bare minimum, that data is useful to an attacker for identity theft. Um, but even if you don't, you know, pretend you're an organization that has ADP as a third-party processor for all of that information, for example. You may not have that data stored, but you have file shares, you have data in some systems, you have workstations that deal with documents. Uh, the, the odds are extraordinarily good that if that data is encrypted and no longer accessible to staff or you know, uh, processes, for example, for label printing or shipping, business stops. And that's all that's needed to to really make extortion effective because it impacts revenue, it impacts uh, reputation of an organization, and it stops the business from functioning. So in a lot of ways, then, this is nothing more than opportunistic. So they'll send potentially what appears to be a reasonably targeted email, because it may be, but they'll just handcraft those for a handful of companies, whoever happens to fall for it will be their victim, right, or, or their target. It's not, they're not really looking for data, particularly many, in many cases, right? It's all about encrypting the data, rendering it unusable, sort of stopping business from happening and incentivizing you to basically pay them to get your data back or your access back. Exactly, and, and ransomware gangs operate in phases and in teams. You know, there's the, the group that tries to get access to an organization first. They'll send out the messages to thousands of organizations, you know, they'll get a 5% success rate. And of them, they have a few that, that seem like worthwhile to target. They hand that over to another uh, group and they perform the actual encryption activity. Uh, that's the, the way they flow. One thing that I think is worth pointing out, because a lot of people that I talk with always come the, from the position of, you know, it won't happen to me. Either my data isn't important, my company's too small, um, I'm not an attractive target for whatever reason. Our experience has shown that in all of the incident response work that we've done, 95% of them are as a result of ransomware, either successfully deployed or maybe caught in the act of deploying. But the reality is only a handful of the incident response work that we've done has been what I would describe as a very targeted attack for the purpose of getting some specific data. Generally, we're responding to ransomware events and they're ransomware events for 10 person companies, 100 person companies, maybe up to you know, a thousand kind of is, is really that, that ballpark we work in, but they don't discriminate and it really doesn't matter the size. It's all about getting that foothold and locking them up, making some money quickly. Right. And it's, it's worth also remembering that individuals, you know, at home, you're not immune. Uh, ransomware, Crypto locker, you know, those are examples of things that affected people. And it's not uncommon to hear that personal photos are encrypted. It's less common today because the profit motive is strong. There's an incentive to target companies and extort them. Uh, But the truth is that uh, because the target is broad and, you know, they may encrypt anyone that's susceptible or or willing to click a link, it could be anyone that's affected. So let's go back a tiny bit. So in our previous episode, we discussed the idea of fundamentals. And I think those are largely applicable to the the defense capability an organization has against ransomware, right? So you you started by saying companies transition to a largely remote work environment. 
in some cases, that meant simply opening firewall ports or, or you know, enabling access from the outside to the inside more permissively than they normally would. Uh, that's an obvious attack vector for these uh, for these cyber actors, right? Right, and we've certainly had multiple incidents where the causal factor was explicitly uh, remote work and, and enablement of remote work. Um, it's to further the business, to permit organizations to function. It's innocent. It's a reasonable right. business decision. Right, they have to work. Right, and, and, and in that case, people had no choice but to transition quickly exactly. and make decisions that might not be perfect. Right, right. exactly. And you know, in that vein, protecting entry mechanisms into networks is is really your chief goal in order to avoid this type of attack. There are lots of tools to do that. Proper firewalls, well-configured firewall rules, um, making sure that folks, if they have access into your network, have robust passwords and secondary defenses like multi-factor or two-factor, whatever you might refer to it as. You know, the ability to, to enter a code uh, when you're actually logging in. That type of uh, technique will really defend a network uh, against attack. Yeah, I mean, we've seen two-factor become much more of a standard practice in the last three or four years, probably, to right. the point now where I'd say if you're not doing it, at least for those remote access capabilities, uh, you're really putting yourself at risk unnecessarily because they're not they're not really expensive to implement. They're not nearly as onerous to use as they were when they first came out, uh, and they really offer legitimate protection against these types of attacks. So it, it is worth pivoting a bit to say, you know, if if an organization does not permit remote access into the network, that doesn't mean they're immune to ransomware attacks. And a, a more fundamental uh, defense against this type of incident would be, frankly, the deployment of robust backups. Because these attacks target data, they interrupt access to data, and if you have a backup of the data that's been encrypted, you don't need to worry. You can restore it. You can move on. Right. Um, if you, if an organization doesn't have a robust backup infrastructure or backups at all, because let's be honest, a backup to a portable USB key or a portable hard drive is an adequate strategy for some companies. If you don't have that, then you're forced to recover the data or to fight back against attackers in a way that is very expensive and may not receive the, the benefit of restoring all that information. Right. So again we're really talking about risk mitigation because even with the backup, if an attacker does successfully encrypt your data, you're still forced with some downtime. You've still got your recovery period that you have to go through, but it dramatically changes sort of the feel of an incident, right? In the sense that if you're having a conversation with somebody who's gone through one of these, the the idea that you've got your data in an accessible format reduces a lot of stress, reduces a lot of anxiety, sort of gives you confidence that you don't have to negotiate with these attackers. Um, it still may take a couple of days. It may take a week, but at least you know that you can recover. And, and that's the huge difference between having backups and not. Right. It, the availability of sound backup data is the dividing line between a very extensive drawn out incident that's expensive or, or something you can frankly put past you in, in a few days. Um, at the same time, it's important to prepare organizationally for the possibility of such an event. We strongly encourage anyone listening to pursue cyber liability policies because they are very helpful in a variety of ways. They will pay claims if you need to engage an incident response firm in order to defend against attackers that are in your network or to help restore uh, from such an attack. But they have other benefits as well. 
Um, without a doubt, incidents affecting data mean that you may need to notify for disclosure of data that's sensitive or otherwise uh, regulated. If that's the case, cyber liability insurance and the legal teams that are associated with it uh, as part of your policy will innately help with responding to the tail end of an incident, even if your backups are extraordinarily robust and enable you to uh, get back to business quickly. So I'm a huge fan of cyber liability insurance. And in fact, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that in more detail in an upcoming podcast. Uh, the one thing that I always like to tell people, though, is cyber liability insurance is not a substitute for a security program. And unfortunately, we see that all of the time where you know there's a limited budget, a decision might be made to purchase a, an insurance policy rather than doing some of those more protective tools or deploying some of those detective capabilities or protective capabilities. It's a, it's a combination of all of those. Right. You can't, one thing is never a total substitute for another. Um, everything's a decision. Everybody's got limited budgets. You have to figure out where to spend that. Uh, cyber liability insurance, though, is never a total substitute for other more reasonable measures. Right. And as we'll cover in that, that future episode, I'm confident we'll discuss some of the requirements that insurers are placing upon policyholders, such as defensive tools, right. defensive actions in order to facilitate claims and keep premiums low. Well, and taking proactive steps is in everybody's best interest. We certainly know that incident response is much more expensive, right? The reactive capabilities are much more expensive than being proactive. Putting some thought into building a reasonable security program, doing those basics up front, really can reduce the likelihood of a successful ransomware attack. Uh, they are cheaper than doing it uh, reactively, no question about that. Uh, it reduces the impact potentially to your business. Uh, you know, we strongly advocate uh, some forward-looking or forward-thinking you know security program development in lieu of just waiting for the the you know the bad the, the, the bad thing to happen and then trying to recover. Right. It's really stressful, really expensive. Uh, there's always some downtime, uh, and nobody wants to go through that. Our guess is that these incidents are are here to stay in some form or another, and you might as well be prepared for them. Uh, so with that. I think we're roughly up against our time. Uh, we could certainly spend a lot more time uh, regaling the audience with you know, sort of tales from the trenches around incident response. Uh, maybe we'll do that in an upcoming podcast. If anybody's interested in something like that, uh, we're happy to talk about you know, real events uh, or you know, real attacks that we've seen and real recovery work that we've done. Um, they make for interesting stories. I think they really drive home the risk to organizations around this. Uh, but with that, I think we'll look forward to talking again in the future, uh, probably about cyber liability insurance. Thanks, Steve. Stay vigilant. Stay resilient. This has been CyberSound. 